having been on the other side, it really just feels like an unfortunate mix of factors that happened at the same time. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Late last Friday, just as we were turning off our computer monitors for the weekend, news broke that U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin was in the hospital in intensive care for four days. And that was significant breaking news. But then there was a bigger story. Austin had been in the hospital for three days before his staff told the president, the national security advisor, or even his top deputy. And suddenly, there were a lot of really smart people who I respect, uh, like Tom Nichols, for example, highlighting the national security risks of this incident. And I wanted to take a closer look at what's happening there and to get a better sense of just how significant it is, how much it matters, and what the national security risks are. So I asked my good friend Hagar Shamali to come on and give us a primer. Hagar, as many of you know, is former spokesperson for the U.S. mission to the United Nations. She also served as the spokesperson for the Treasury's Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence and was a senior policy sanctions advisor at the Department of Treasury and a Middle East director at the National Security Council in the Obama White House. She is currently an adjunct professor at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs and the host and creator of Oh My World on YouTube, a show that breaks down geopolitics and world news stories in a fun and easy way. She's often on MSNBC. Hagar, welcome back. Thanks. Thank you, Ron. Always great to be with you. So Austin was taken to the hospital on Monday night for, quote, complications following a recent elective medical procedure. DOD didn't inform the White House until Thursday. On Thursday, the Pentagon told senior officials on the National Security Council that Austin was hospitalized. And then they told the public finally on Friday, late on Friday, about 5 p.m., which in PR world is take out the trash time, uh, the, the time at which you hope that nobody notices you're breaking this very big story. All of a sudden... The Twitterverse lit up, cable news lit up like a Christmas tree, and all of the national security experts were making the rounds talking about just how devastating the story was for the White House, just how big a deal it was for our national security, and how, oh, how could this possibly have happened? Let's do this first. Why don't you sort of characterize the land, since you are probably more in tune with these voices and this expertise than I am characterize the landscape of reactions to this news and and sort of give listeners a sense of what the prevailing sentiment is now among national security experts. And I think a lot of people are probably going to be wondering, why should I be paying so much attention to this? And why is this such a big deal that Politicology is dropping an episode on it, a whole episode? So let's start there. And then uh, and then you can sort of share how you are reacting to this. And uh, and then we'll we'll dig in further. Sure. Well, like you, I learned of this from the press when I got an alert on my phone. And the alert on my phone, and I think on, on the, the, the headlines at that time were automatically uh, that Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin had been hospitalized and uh, that, that President Biden only learned of it four days later. So that was, you know, that was kind of the news right, right off the bat. And it escalated very quickly in the press and in the Washington circle and among politicians immediately after that. You had politicians from both the Republican and Democrat side calling this into question, saying that, you know, somebody's head had to roll for this, that, that, that there needed to be a review, uh, that somebody had to be held accountable. How could something like this happen? You had 
not only did you have numerous articles and like you said, cable news and they all blew up and <laughs> lit up like a Christmas tree. Um, I mean, and not just cable news, print journalism, New York Times, Washington Post, everybody was, yeah. Everybody, everybody. And I, I think the stories are not over. Uh, by the way, I have a feeling that we're going to see more kind of these investigative pieces of what happened on a day, day-to-day basis uh, coming coming soon. Um, but, but you also had the press corps of the Defense Department submitted a letter to the Defense Department calling it a, quote, outrage that they weren't informed of, of Secretary Austin's hospitalization earlier. And, and so bottom line is that, you know, you see the, the, the clouds in Washington growing and, and getting louder. And even now, as we are recording. Oh yeah. Oh, it does. Yes. Yes. And very quickly from there. I mean, so that's through the weekend somewhere, I think, I believe yesterday on Monday, I saw a headline saying Biden will not fire. Secretary Austin. And so then you start to see calls growing even further, calls for Secretary Austin to be fired or to resign and um, and and for further investigation. And now, un- until now, we, we are getting more and more details trickling out on exactly what it is he had, what it was he was being treated for, and so on. And, and so, so you're, you have kind of this hurricane of, of, of information. And in my experience, I can tell you, having been on the other side as a spokesperson, this is one of those instances where you see, I mean, it's a real communications crisis for sure. And I, I do think that it will die down. And in two weeks, we're not going to be talking about it. It's kind of like the tan suit, but, but on a national security level. But I'm going to be very honest, as I always am with, with politicology listeners. And I believe that aside from the White House, those inside the White House, I might be the only American on the outside who doesn't view this as catastrophic as the press is making it out to be. It's not, I don't want to dismiss that it's, that there were mistakes made, that it's not good. It's certainly not good at a time when you've got such a massive number of conflicts happening around the world, including those that pose significant national security threats to the United States. But I also view it having been in government during the holidays, having been the person who's been there, left behind when people are are, are traveling and, and, and shit happens, of course. I really saw it as one of those instances where it was a series of factors and mistakes that led to this and it just sucks and shit happens. <laughs> and, but, uh, and, and, and there are ramifications, but the, I don't see them as grave as many out there are, are saying. So certainly it is a PR crisis. Certainly it is now a political crisis, uh, uh, evidenced by the breaking news alert that Biden will not fire Lloyd Austin because clearly there have been calls for uh, his head or for heads to roll who authorized this decision or failures in the chain of command should have reported this to the White House. Um, but I think let's, zo- let's, let's talk about whether or not this is a or was a national security crisis, which I think is the, like, the substance here. Um, uh, to, to, to steel man that argument, I think we need to back up for the context. Uh, and there's been a lot of national security news out of the Middle East, obviously, since the Hamas attacks on October 7th, but there was a lot of activity last week. Um, and maybe you can help walk us through what was going on, but we know, uh, the Islamic state linked suicide bombing happened in Iran. We killed the leader of a pro Iran militia group in Baghdad uh, Israel killed a Hezbollah commander in Lebanon. Uh, Iranian-backed militias have launched more than a hundred t- attacks, I think, on U.S. troops in Syria. Um, uh, uh, th- there are lots of things happening, and things 
uh, are escalating in the Middle East. I think um, that's that's what it seems. So perhaps this is adding to the gravity of the Austin news in in context. Is there anything else going on around the world that we should be sort of reading this in light of? Well, sure. So I have to say that 2024 did not start out so calm. <laughs> and I am skeptical of what 2024 has to offer, given how tumultuous the first week had been. So you you summed up uh, really a lot of most of what was happening in the Middle East already. Um, I would also add that there were two Hamas leaders killed in one, one in Lebanon. That was a big one in the suburb of Beirut and another one in Syria. That was just this week. And, uh, and, and by the way, it's so many, it's so quick. I mean, every, every day you wake up, you're waking up to more volatile, violent news coming from the Middle East. And so I expect that that is only going to grow further. I don't expect to, for it to escalate into an all out war. And we can get into that. I feel we've talked about that, but, but, um, but it's very tense. And I always say when the clouds gather in the Middle East, it storms everywhere. And that is what you're seeing. You're seeing these bad actors take advantage of an unstable situation. None of them want to full out an all out war with the United States because they know they'd lose. They just want to kick U.S. presence out and they want to be troublemakers. And that's what they do in situations like that. So not Again, these are major threats. You have them impeding freedom of navigation in the Red Sea, which is contributing to global inflation and causing shipping companies to, to say that they're not going to use that waterway and they're going to go all the way around Africa. So these are major threats. I, mean, I don't want to dismiss them. You have U.S. bases across the Middle East where our troops and our presence and our equities are being targeted. So it is these are major things, but but you have to keep in mind that as as far as national security crises go, in, and it's not like that every day in the Middle East, but when you handle the Middle East, it's kind of, you know, you're used to it, that you see phases like this all the time. And um, nonetheless, it's not good in the Middle East, and those threats keep growing. Houthis are not getting the message to stop attacking vessels in the Red Sea. They're still doing them. The U.S. has now warned that they're really serious. If they don't stop, then the U.S. is going to go on the offensive against Houthi militants in Yemen. Iran deployed a warship in the Red Sea. So you you that might rope that warship involved. You've got Hezbollah, obviously, that what's happening between Hezbollah and Israel is only growing by the day. Constant strikes back and forth. And Israel warning Hezbollah, you, we're not afraid to go at you with our full destruction, but we're warning you not to. And um, And so all of this is escalating. You also have Russia has pursued the most intense strikes across Ukraine since the beginning of the Ukraine war. And it's not getting a lot of coverage because of what's happening in the Middle East, but it's happening. And you and 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 President Zelensky obviously remains confident and defiant and 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 they're going to continue fighting as they should. And then you have what's happening in China between China and Taiwan. China has sent spy balloons across Taiwan. Taiwan has major elections this Saturday that uh the outcome of which could really make a huge difference in what happens in this in this conflict, uh, if you can call it conflict, this this situation, the the Taiwan question, as the China say, as Chinese say, um, and that's because one of the leaders, one of the candidates who could win, is one who would want to declare Taiwan's independence. So China has now sent spy balloons across Taiwan. They've now just sanctioned um, a number of. Uh, U.S. defense companies, and uh, all of this just happened. This is all in one week, okay? Oh, my God. <laughs> so, and just to highlight that there's something yeah. astrological happening, Japan suffered a massive earthquake, and then they're like a plane caught on fire when they collided <laughs> in Japan, right? Things that don't all happen in one week. And I have to admit, I have to say, not that I want to be 
um, doom and gloom. But this is how 2020 started as well. So I'm just going to put that out there. So the, the bottom line is that, and you have the greatest number of conflicts happening around the world since World War II. That's just in general. That's been the case for the last year. So it's not a good time. Things are not good. They are very tense. And uh, not only do you have all these conflicts growing around the world, in places where the U.S. has strong national security interests or where we're supporting supporting one party or, or sending uh, arms, uh, which is the case for Taiwan, for example. That's what sparked China's sanctions. Um, you also have the fact that we know that it is an election year and you have dictators who are very closely watching what's happening in Washington and the, and the United States and the threats that misinformation and AI could play in that in our election and how they use that, which our intelligence community, community has, has determined is one of the biggest threats we face this year. So, um, and I'm skimming the top, right? So yeah, it's, right. This it's, is I haven't talked about the Southern border. We haven't, we haven't, yeah. right? There's yeah. a lot happening. And, um, and so when you put what happened against the backdrop of this, of, of, of this chaos that you're facing around the world, then on one hand, it's, it, yes, it feels as though it's not just about the secretary himself, Secretary Austin himself, being there all the time, 24-7, ready to take the call if something were to happen. It's more, I think what people are feeling is this lack of confidence in like, well, wait a minute, this is something so simple. And, you know, when people need a sick day, usually you tell your boss, how come that didn't happen? Something so simple. How could that fall apart? And if you look at that, something so simple, and you compare it to the challenges we're facing around the world, then it, can, it could seem as though the Defense Department is not uh, able to tackle that threat or, or uh, competent enough. But you, you, you have to question competence. You're immediately left questioning competence. If something so simple mm -hmm. as this kind of protocol can fail, then what else is failing or what else do we not know about? Yeah. I think that's how it seems. But to me, having been on the other side, it really just feels like an unfortunate mix of factors that happened at the same time. Okay. Senior administration officials are people, are human. <laughs> They're... There are times Shocking, when they're <laughs> not going to be able to carry out their duties. So what usually happens in those situations? How would you expect a process like this to play out under normal circumstances? Or how did it play out during the Obama administration? Yeah, I'm glad you asked this because I don't feel like there's enough focus on how it actually works. And it's it's not very formal. There is no formal rule book, for example, that says... Uh, to a principal, a principal meaning a secretary of, of an agency that says, when you are out or when you are on vacation or when you um, are going to pursue some kind of elective medical procedure, um, you must tell the White House by this date and you must do a press release. And, you know, there, there is no guidebook for that. It's really more just common practice or norms and procedures that uh, that the agencies do on their own. And it's, it is its standard. And usually the people involved in that are a mix of people. It would include the chief of staff. It would include the deputy, uh, the, the deputy secretary, I mean, and the chief comms person, whomever that is, whether it's an assistant secretary for public affairs or director of communications, whatever the title is for that agency. And those individuals are the ones really who handle that kind of um, that kind of rollout or just managing it, if you will. Um, and, and, and the, so like I said, so nothing written that's, that's hard and stone. The practice is typical, is typically that 
if if someone is going to have some kind of big surgery and it's planned, what you've seen is some kind of press release that's shared with the press in advance so that it's just not a big deal. So that, you know, so that here we've announced this to you, you have the right to know, this is a public official, public senior official, here's the report, uh, there you go. And in the meantime, this the deputy will be in charge. Now, transferring duties to a deputy is something that is very commonplace. It's not just for moments like that, when there is a surgery that's planned or something like this. It could even be as minor as uh, the secretary is going to the the high school play of their child and they really can't answer the phone for that one hour and they really don't want to look at the phone. So for that one hour, they've told the White House and they've told their deputy, okay, by the way, everything should be transferred to them. And if they haven't told the White House and they try to reach the secretary and the secretary doesn't pick up, they have numerous other phone numbers they're going to call within minutes. So that's kind of how it how it works on a on a regular basis, and I want to hit on that last part uh, uh, more because I've, I've I saw a lot of kind of this hyperbole. And listen, I'm, I I want to I want to be clear that I viewed it as hyperbole. That's my opinion. <laughs> um, but a lot of comments of like, well, how would the secretary be reached in the mo- You know, what if he was incapacitated? Okay, well. If if he was going to be what if the carrier pigeon didn't reach him in time and we yeah. had to get him a message? <laughs> yes, yes. I want to be clear about this. So first, okay. that is why duties had That's been glib. already. There's this is serious. I'm being glib, but yes. I know. No, I mean it is serious. It is serious. And by the way, I was really sad to hear this news um, yeah. uh, about about this this diagnosis. And I really hope I really wish him well, and I hope he gets better soon. The um, BBC is reporting that it's prostate cancer, and uh, we should tell our listeners that, but that may be why they chose not to say anything in the first place. Yes. As oh, you, I have as no you mentioned, doubt. Secretary Austin's a, you know, famously private person. So yes, he is. He is. Well, you know, I have, I have seen in the press that he's famously private and I don't know him personally. Um, I know his chief of staff personally, and I can tell you that she is phenomenal and she's known for that. She's beloved, uh, among, among us government and worked under Bush and Obama was beloved, really hard worker, brilliant woman. Um, I'm talking about Kelly Magsman. And um, I had the pleasure of working with her at the NSC for years. I mean, she literally sat right next to me. So um, anyway, uh, but but for him, you know, I have no doubt that that played into his decision-making, right? This started off as a medical procedure he pursued on December 22nd. And, and, and then the next day was back home and resumed duties. So for all he knew, it was something minor that 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 was easy to take care of, that he could resume his duties and write. Uh, give a diagnosis like that, maybe not knowing the future of it, um, is going to make you question how you handle it. But the part about him being private, uh, and again, like I said, I don't I don't know him personally, but I have worked with numerous military officials, and they do tend to be quite private and, and they about their personal life and about things that they're handling or dealing with at home. And that is part of the culture. And they, and he is a career military person. He was in the U S military for 40 years. He is highly decorated. He was retired only for four years before becoming or four or five. I mean, however you want to look at it, uh, before becoming secretary of defense. And, um, and so that's, you know, old habits die hard. That is his training is, is military. But I, but like you said, I do think I'm sure that the, with, you know, I'm speculating here, but I'm sure that the diagnosis itself played into this. Um, just this unfortunate series of, of events. It's not like he had this planned 
something planned that he thought he was going to be out for a week and, you know, and so they could plan it. It was unplanned. It, when he went back to the hospital with these severe pains. And then when he did, his deputy was on, on vacation and his chief of staff had the flu at home. I mean, it was like a series Mm. of things that, that, that just happened this way. Series of unfortunate events. It is. And it is on him. I mean, he said it's it's on him. He should have informed the president. And he absolutely should have, by the way, like 100 percent he should have, just like anyone would tell their boss. Um, but uh, but again, old habits die hard. And maybe he was being super private, didn't want to bother him again. That's super military. They don't like to. They feel like something like that would bother somebody. They don't want to feel like they're imposing, you know, that, and as soon as he could, he took his work up again. And so this is the point I want to make that it, it segues perfectly to that point that I wanted to make about being accessible. So duties had been delegated to his deputy when he went to the hospital, um, unplanned, uh, uh, on January 1st. And that is what is supposed to happen. So in the event of a crisis, in the event of a crisis, even though the White House didn't know where he was, and let's say, let's pretend that they tried to reach him and it wasn't he wasn't reachable, we, they have a list of phone numbers and contacts that they're going to reach right after that. They're going to call his wife. They're going to call any other number they have for him, his home number. They're going to call the deputy. Um, they're going to call the Defense Department operator who's going to say, oh, well, it looks like the deputy is actually... Uh, On vacation in Puerto Rico. Yes, but tasked with 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 the responsibilities, and that is why these these um, these principals carry their communications equipment with them. So, and she had it in Puerto Rico. It's for those emergencies. They are used to emergencies, even though they are humans. They are used to emergencies happening at any hour of the day, at any day of the week. Um, and so that's, I think, why I also saw this as, you know, well, had something happened, it would have been managed. And it sucks that he didn't tell people, but it would have been managed. It was just a mistake. (laughs) So this is, okay. So I think this is starting to take shape here, which is, yes, absolutely PR crisis. Yes, absolutely political crisis, because none of this looks good, especially she's on vacation in Puerto Rico. I mean, the optics of this are really not good. Maybe cool your jets a little bit on the, this is a national security crisis. Can you help us understand what the role of the Secretary of Defense is in national security decision-making and then what gaps have to get filled if they're out. For example, if he delegates his his responsibilities for a period of time to his deputy who's, you know, on vacation but has her emergency devices with her, does she have the same kind of decision-making authority in the event of a national security crisis that demands his attention or not, right? What, let's talk about the substance of, uh, you know, what could have happened if uh, if she were needed? So the answer to your first question, if she has the decision-making authority uh, when responsibilities have been delegated is yes, she has all the decision-making ability that he does. Now, let's pretend that if he were out for a long period of time, then make sure you're going to face other issues with, with, with a deputy being in that role versus, uh, versus a secretary, just as you would, right? Like if anybody's acting in a role, you're always going to face issues, but technically no. You're going to face Te- more scrutiny because you're not the person. Right? Yeah, right. Of course. Exactly. And, um, and those are Senate confirmed positions, obviously. I mean, both of them are Senate confirmed positions, but, um, but that said, but technically and legally, the person has the same decision-making authority. Now, they're going to be signing off on on major attacks but again where you put major is is um is is up to definition it just depends on the context because 
you've got a lot of things that are decided. One of the beauties of our military is that it is not very bureaucratic. And there are decisions that can be made by generals who are on the ground, who are who are tasked with defending U.S. presence in, in the Middle East, for example, right? If, if something is something there, if something escalates to something more major, then yes, it's going to go up the chain in Washington. And if something is even bigger than that, it's going to the commander in chief. The commander in chief is President Biden. And um, and it's not the secretary. And nine out of 10 times, what I used to see when I was at the NSC was whenever there was any kind of major decision that was defense related, the secretary of defense's job was really to gather the pros and cons of every option, was to look at every option that existed and work with his, with his or her team on that and get the list of pros and cons and to come with a recommendation to the president because the president is the commander in chief. And so that's something that the deputy is equally going to be skilled at because she's already doing that with him. She's involved in that. That's literally half of what they do is is when they're faced with these challenges, it's to prepare options, the pros and cons of each, and to make these recommendations. And nine out of 10 times, it's not at the last minute. The Defense Department is known for its contingency planning. They live for contingency planning. They are very good at it. And they spend a lot of time and manpower on it. And $800 billion a year. Yeah, basically. (laughs) I mean, they look at every single scenario that can exist and they look and say like, well, if this, then that, if this line is crossed, then this is what happens. If that, so they, it's, they, they don't have to sit around a table and and brainstorm at the last minute. If anything, I would say that they're most organized of most of the of most of the agencies in government because they spend so much time planning, and they know the options that exist, and they know what the repercussions will be because they've studied them. So the secretary's job is really to recommend the way forward to the president, and then the president decides, and that's for major things. Um, and uh, but again, not something that the deputy can't do in a moment like that because the deputy is already involved in those processes. Right. Okay. This is really helpful. So uh, let's let's sort of pivot a little bit. And I want to look outward because we're talking about how this is being perceived internally, domestically so far. I think this is uh, pretty understandable at this stage. Now, more news is going to come out over the coming uh, sort of weeks, as you mentioned. But let's look outward for a moment. And I wonder what an episode like this can mean for our relationships with it allies. Uh, are they paying attention to this? How are our allies reading this? And, you know, we've talked a lot since October 7th about, you know, how there are more national security issues brewing um, at any time since World War II. You mentioned that earlier. How does this read out to our adversaries and to bad actors? So two different questions there, but let's look outward and how the rest of the world is perceiving this incident. Well, one of the things that uh, that's always fascinated me, and I mean, I shouldn't be surprised, I guess, is the extent to which the outside world pays attention to what's happening in in the United States and in Washington, and they they'll know details that we would never know about their own uh, developments, political developments, and so the rest of the world is covering this piece of news, but it's not front page. And then I will say, by the way, because I wanted to check before going on, it is not. It was. It's front page news for us, but not like the, it's not the biggest thing at the top. The biggest things at the top are related to the Middle East or Trump right now. And that gave me some relief when I saw that because I was like, okay, at least we, we understand where this falls in the grand scheme 
of the drama that's happening in the world. I mean, doors are flying off of airplanes and California is about to start drinking toilet water. And we're talking about this as, you know, yeah. sometimes Although, I thinking. I think we should say, at least I want to make this point, that the prominence of a story in any given news outlet's coverage is not an indication of how important it is or should be. Uh, yes, because I think very, very often, and especially, I hate to say this again and again, but in the case of the New York Times, um, so much coverage is given to the wrong things uh, and in the wrong way. And so I just, I, I lay that caveat out there because I, I don't think we should use that as an indicator, but I am curious about how other countries are reading it. And as we know, the way, the way press decides to cover and how much column inches or space they decide to give to something does have a material impact on people's perceptions of its importance. That's right. So what I've seen so far coming from abroad is really more reporting it as facts as as they've seen it so far, right? The news that that he had this procedure on the 22nd and then that he had severe pains that sent him to the hospital back on January 1st and that Biden didn't know until January 4th, blah, 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 right? They, they're reporting it all, and they but they are reporting more. All I've seen is this has that they they share concern about it. They say like this is clearly concerning. I saw one. I think it was from the Economist or somewhere that 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 was editorial that editorialized it as something that was concerning. And um and but more importantly, they they do it by highlighting how Washington has reacted. So because of Washington's reaction and the press reaction there, they are saying you know this has caused a stir among Washington. This has caused politicians to question whether or not he should be fired. And 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 now Biden is is under pressure to do so, but Biden has resisted, right? So it's kind of they are they're observing it and commenting on it. But I haven't seen anything from Europe at least from and I really am talking about Europe right now that has been anything more than just summing up what they're seeing happening in Washington and and doing it with 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 a lot of interest um I have not seen the press coming from Russia or China or Iran I just I can tell you um this is not this is lose lose no matter how you look at it for a for our adversaries or given how our adversaries look at us. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and what I mean by that is that, and that, and I have no doubt that that was, it may have crossed again, I'm speculating. It may have crossed the secretary's mind in when or whether to share this type of information. And that's because had he shared the information early, um, uh, you know, that he had received this diagnosis, that he would be undergoing an elective procedure and then that, or that, that they announced it when he went to the hospital on January 1st, um, that he may have thought, well, then our adversaries know that the secretary of defense has a cancer diagnosis and they're going to be watching him. They're going to be monitoring him even more. They're going to be looking for any kinds of signs of, bad health. And they're not only going to, not only are they going to feel emboldened by that, but they could even try and play on that with misinformation out there and so on. And by the way, we do that too, not with the misinformation part, but when we see in the U S when we see adversaries who may, who might be sick, we focus on that. We, our intelligence communities try and hunt down every detail they can about that leader because they want to know, well, how sick are they? Are they near the end? Because this could, imp- this could have major implications for our own national security. If Putin, for example, and I don't know that they ever proved that he was sick in any way. I'm just using him because I, that was a rumor that was going around. Um, uh, so there was this rumor when, when Ukraine started that, that he had cancer. There's still, that's, that rumor still exists. And 
I have no doubt, rumor or not, that the intelligence community is hunting that information down. And they may not have been before, right? So they're going to be, now all of a sudden, you're you're looking at, they're going to hunt down sources from everywhere that they can try and get these this detail. So that is opening up a vulnerability and opening up a counterintelligence threat that you don't want to open up and you don't want to make that adversary feel emboldened by this. So that is information that really is sensitive. It's, con- you know, I don't want to use the word confidential because I know that there are reasons why the U.S. public deserves to know about the medical state of its leaders, for sure. Um, but it's sensitive, if you know, if I, if I were to put it like that. Um, and uh, and on the flip side, if you don't share that information and you have the debacle that just happened, then the national, then our adversaries look at that and say, "Look at these guys; don't know their left hand from their right." And so, imagine what would happen if you know we didn't we didn't invade China. Says you know we didn't invade Taiwan now, but when but when we do, you know cl- maybe we should do it in August when everyone's on vacation and and uh, clearly they won't be ready for it. We'll catch them by surprise, right? So it just it makes again it it's not a good look <laughs> it's a mistake that makes uh that gives a bad perception as though we aren't as though we don't have all of our ducks in a row and that our system is not operating like a well-oiled machine um but it so not a good look for sure definitely a mistake but i still don't think it will i don't think it'll encourage these adversaries to do something major okay so what can what should the administration uh, do here? Um, President Biden, as we've both mentioned, is you know not going to fire Austin, or at least he said he's not going to fire Austin. Politico is now reporting that uh, if Austin attempted to offer Biden his resignation, he wouldn't accept it. Biden wouldn't accept it. Um, and we just got a memo just about an hour ago before we started taping uh, now on Tuesday afternoon that uh, the White House Chief of Staff, uh, Jeff Zients, is launching a review of cabinet protocols for delegating authority. So Axios is reporting on this. Um, They will be looking to make sure they address delegation criteria, decision-making authority, uh, applicable documentation, notification procedures, uh, rescission of delegation. And they're also going to make sure that telling the White House is part of the procedure, (laughs) in case that wasn't already part of the procedure. and on Monday, DOD directed an internal review of its delegation process already. So um, is this sufficient? What else should be done? And I think we ought to break that into, you know, we ought to fork that question, really, which is substantively sort of in terms of protocol, in terms of actual management practices, what should be done? And then separately, I think there's a political PR question here, which let's save uh, for the after, for, for afterwards. So let's start with the substance here. What should they do? Yes. So let's divide this into two. So first you have the question about Secretary Austin and the employees involved, um, those who know. I And I mentioned this at the beginning. I was really surprised when I saw the headline saying that, that Biden would not fire Secretary Austin, not because I think he should be fired, but because I just didn't expect it to get to that level. And, and that's because to me, have, like I said, having been on the inside, I could see how it's these series of mistakes and unfortunate events and factors led to this. And I don't think I, and I stand by that. And there, there are going to people be numerous people who disagree and that's fine. But I don't, I don't think that, that anyone should be fired by this. I don't like, and I saw, you know, I saw a headline in Politico that said somebody's head has to roll. And I don't know if they were quoting somebody else, Mm. but that was in the headline. I saw that too. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, it brought me back to my days at the U.S. mission to the U.N., where it was a very similar environment of like where 
and, and Grant, to be fair, not as major, but, you know, but we did have some big mistakes that would happen. And it was always this hunt for who was at fault. Someone's head had to roll. And I hated that because it was, it created this dysfunctional, toxic environment where people then started throwing other people under the bus because they didn't want to be the ones blamed. And when in reality, it was never really one person's fault. It was always a group of things that would have happened. Um, and it distracts from the real work at, at hand. Right. So, um, so that's my take on that. On the second part, uh, this is so classic crisis communications, uh, where, and I teach, that is what I teach at Columbia. I teach strategic communications in international affairs. And the job is now to, to, re, to review the situation, to examine the situation, to come up with the solutions, to keep everybody informed of those solutions, and then to inform everybody when the crisis is over. And the crisis will be over when you have come up with that set of protocols. Now, I will add, this this to me just sounds like added bureaucracy, but again, you do want to prevent something like this from happening in the future. And these are really standard protocols and practice and norms, but in an event where you have people on vacation or people sick and, or, or a storm of both and, um, and, and someone going to an emergency room, clearly it can happen. Then you're going to want those protocols in place. It's only safer. So I trust that they're going to do this review and I don't think it should be that difficult because I think at the end of the day, they're going to be able to say, you know, uh, if you know of a medical, you know, if you are secretary or deputy, let's say, or you are, you know, one of the examples that has been offered as a comparison was the head of the Marine Corps. He had a heart surgery that had been planned and there was a press release announcing it to the press a week before. And that is a military comparison, right? So that, that, that is a fair comparison. That is right. So, um, so my argument that it's just a military culture is not, doesn't stand. It's more that, it, military personality is what I was viewing when I was what I was thinking when I was thinking of Secretary Austin. But that said, um, you know, they could say, okay, you have this planned, then five days out or four days out or whatever, um, we inform Congress first, then we we put out a press release hours later. The reason I say hours, that's common in, in government is because Congress leaks everything. And the executive branch hates that. They hate that. I hated it. We all hated it. You told something to Congress about anything. Everybody upcoming. Knows. Oh my God, upcoming sanctions, an upcoming strike, um, anything, a personnel change. And an hour later, you were seeing it in Reuters or Politico. It was awful. It was terrible. So, and that's on Congress, that's on their staff. So, that's why you see that short window. But anyway, okay, update Congress. An hour or two later, put out your press release, do a briefing with the press on how the responsibilities will be delegated. Uh, that also should be in the, in the protocol. I don't think they'll have difficulty yeah, putting this together. This yeah. yeah. And right. then for an emergency, they'll have a separate one where if it's an emergency, cause obviously that happens too, then, you know, ugh, it's going to depend on the emergency, but they'll probably say like, you know, when, when, when you have enough information, then you have to make a decision on a case by case basis on when to tell the public, but that decision-making must be done with the white house. Cause the white house is good at this. They, they look at every single stakeholder and are good at judging when, um, when to announce something. So. Yeah. So how do you expect this to play out? You know what there will also be? Congress will definitely hold a hearing at some point in the next few weeks, bringing probably the secretary himself, probably the deputy secretary to get as much details they can out in the open. And even if this dies down in the next couple of weeks in the news, that I certainly expect to happen. And it will only reopen this can of worms. And maybe there'll be even more details that we find out then. Great. Just what we need. 
another congressional hearing. Okay. Well, politically speaking, I can say this was absolutely a gift to Republicans. Uh, mm. You can you can be sure there will be lots of uh, lots of criticism and scrutiny for uh, for this um, at a time when the White House really doesn't need it. Well, it's a so, shame too because Secretary yeah. Austin on on Israel Gaza on Ukraine. Um, on China has been doing has doing a great job. Um, there's a quote of his on Israel. I continue to repeat. He he um, about you know not not taking a not replacing a tactical victory with a strategic defeat. With in terms of how Israel's pursuing the you know how the civil the high civilian death toll in in Gaza. You know this is he's he's smart. There is a reason he is very highly decorated. He was in Iraq for years. Um, and led some of our biggest battles. And so, you know, I don't, I don't want, I, and I don't think this is going to diminish his legacy and, and, uh, but I, but I also, that's partly part, probably why I don't think he should suffer for this, given that he's had a relatively good track record. Do you think we are, Israel is, I should say, on the verge of all out war with Hezbollah? Is that, is that actually where we are? <laughs> I Sorry. don't. I, mean, I know this is off topic, but what, no, let's discuss it is, because it's my favorite topic. Where, where's that at? It seems imminent. It looks bad. Look, I'm not going to lie to you. It looks bad. And yeah. if I, you know, if, if if you look at all the details and developments on paper, it looks like they're on the brink of, of an all out war. And I'm going to, and I'm not going to lie to you. I would not, I would not suggest buying a ticket to Beirut right now. Um, but that's not because I think you're going to be evacuated in the middle of a massive war. It's because when things heat up, with Israel, one of the first things they do is usually bomb a runway. Um, and so then you get stuck and you don't want to take a boat to Cyprus. That's no fun. So um, that's why I, that's why I say that. And so it's volatile and extremely dangerous. And the risk of miscalculation is extremely high. And you do have these tit for tat strikes going back and forth that are growing. Israel pursues mostly aerial strikes when it's coming, when it comes to Lebanon and Hezbollah is pursuing uh, anti tank missiles because that's what they that's one of the strongest things they have because their aerial strikes will get mostly uh, uh, the iron dome will strike those down usually so they have been succeeding if they succeeded at striking anything in israel it's usually because of these anti-tank missiles that go across the border and so that's also why israel really wants to put this to a stop and both sides even by the way even though hezbollah's chief nasrallah thumped his chest after the Hamas leader, the top Hamas leader who was killed in Beirut last week, thumped his chest and said, we aren't afraid of war, um, which is not true. Everyone in Lebanon is afraid of war and has been since the end of the civil war in 1991. And, and they don't, they don't hide that. And, uh, and that's bluster to me. And a lot of experts have said, have said the same thing. I'm not alone in this yeah. as I am alone on the, as on Lebanese the secretary American. Austin. Yeah. <laughs> I am alone on the Secretary Austin view. I am not alone on this view. <laughs> um, it's a lot of bluster. And the bluster is because you've got U.S. presence right there sitting in the Mediterranean. They do not want to draw the United States into a war. And at the same time... Can, can we pause on that for just a moment? Because it seems to me that our level of sort of engagement, shall we use the euphemism, the military euphemism, our level of engagement in the Middle East right now seems not zero. And uh, it seems to me like only a matter of time until we are drawn into what we will have to call a war um, that the United States is engaged in. It seems really, it is, it is beginning to strain credulity, I think, to 
pretend that the United States is not engaged in a war in the Middle East. It's starting to feel that way because of mm. all of the attacks that are being traded, especially at our bases uh, in the Middle East. Can you talk a little bit more about that and just how how much we are actually engaging with adversarial forces and retaliating uh, against them, uh, whether it's the Houthis, whether it's Hezbollah, whether it's uh, you know militants at our bases elsewhere in the Middle East? What exactly is does that look like? Yeah. So the U.S. is militarily engaged would be the right terminology for for this in in combat operations. But in war, the Defense Department wouldn't call it that. Sure. But we can't we also can't say it's not a war unless Congress declares war because we know they're not going to fucking do that. Right. Yeah, no, I wouldn't wait on Congress anyway. Right. Right. Um, But what you have right now in terms of where the U.S. is militarily engaged in the Middle East, you've got. Uh, vessels that are positioned in the Red Sea that are actively fighting and actively it is more def- it's still on the defensive. They will fight back. All of it has been fighting back. None of it has been on the offensive. It has only been in response to any kind of strike or attack by a militant group of some kind or terrorist group, all of which have been Iran-backed. Against so- us or our ally. Against us, our allies, or or commercial vessels. Um, so right, that are flagged. Some of them are Israeli flagged. Some of them aren't. So that's. So let's start in the Red Sea. That's what they're doing there. For example, you've got vessels. You actually have an international navy coalition that was led and grouped by the United States. The U.S. grouped this. Um, and we could go into that. It's the finances on that is fascinating. It's but it's Biden jumped very quickly to create this coalition when the Houthi militants who are ma- who are based in Yemen and they are funded and armed by Iran. They're an Iranian proxy. And Yemen is that kind of southern corner tip that is across from the Horn of Africa. And you've got- The Strait of Hormuz, where so much of global trade uh, goes through. We know, like, well, sorry, I'm familiar with this. Maybe our listeners aren't familiar with this. But the reason, I'll betcha, that Biden jumped so quickly to put this coalition together is because it would have crippled the global economy. Oh, yeah. If the Houthis had been successful in stopping trade from, you know, traversing this channel because it's the primary route of uh, commercial traffic from China and Asia, I should say, all the way to the eastern seaboard of the United States. I mean, it's really bad. You're <laughs> and, talking— and, and Europe, right. Yeah. You're apparent. Well, listen, it's—and it's not far off. Um, right. CNN reported that 18 shipping companies have halted shipping through that—through those waters right now, and that is— that is a waterway where 15% of the globe of global goods go through that waterway. And if they don't go through there and they still need to get to Europe or the United States, they have to go around all of Africa. Right. I mean, all this the way is down not- to the very, yeah, around this around South Africa, all the way back up. It adds yeah. 30% to the journey, essentially, which yes. adds 30% to the cost of your goods. Exactly. So, and the reason these ships, I think, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but the real reason these ships won't go there, the 18 or so shipping companies have canceled trips is because they can't get them insured. No insurance company is going to insure the container ships going through this, you know, deadly strait with rockets firing at it because, you know, there's no way. So if you can't get the insurance, the boats aren't going to, yeah. hundred percent. It's a risky area. I mean, (laughs) between that, the potential for piracy, I mean, it's all, it's all pretty bad. And so, so they, um, they have, that is exactly why the Biden administration likely jumped very quickly because they didn't want this to contribute to global inflation because it would have. And and it still might, by the way, freight rates have jumped 
astronomically, the 2.5 to four times more than what they should be, more than what they were in December. I mean, this is, so it is still a risk. But anyway, the U.S. created an international Navy coalition. So other countries are part of that. The vessels there are there to monitor those waterways. They're not there to pursue active war. But the Houthi militants continue to lob um, missiles at, at random vessels, or some Houthi militant boats have approached vessels and they'll make a, an emergency call and you've had U.S. helicopters go and sink those boats, for example. So everything the U.S. and others have done has been in defense. It's all in, the, in, in an effort to maintain stability and to be on the defense. The same goes for bases that you've had in Iraq and Syria. You have a number of Iran-backed militant groups in both areas, in both countries, and every time they have lobbed something against a U.S. base, which has not resulted in any deaths, but has resulted in some injuries so far, not to say that it's not dangerous, that is very dangerous, the U.S. then has responded with some kind of strike, uh, proportionate strike, by the way. Proportionate, I mean, the U.S. one is stronger. They 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 kill leaders. They, they actually kill some militants. But, but in the grand scheme of things, proportionate. I mean, they're not like obliterating or wiping out these bases. Um, although I wouldn't be against that. But anyway, that's, <laughs> that's separate. So everything they've done, and there's a reason for that. Everything they're doing, you can see, is meant to be, in quotes, proportionate or in defense. Now, the only place you see the risk, I see the risk where that could change, and I am not against it, I have to be honest with you, is if they take a more offensive approach toward the Houthi militants in Yemen, because they keep communicating to them. You know, we're not going to allow you to impede freedom of navigation. Freedom of navigation is a priority of the United States and the world. And you're not allowed to just control these waterways or, or hijack them for this reason. And too valuable. they have, yes, and they have publicly threatened them already with going on the offense. And the Houthis don't stand a chance against the U.S. in, in something like this. So um, that's where I could see us get involved. Now, the, why the U.S. is being careful? Because they don't want that Iranian warship to get involved. They don't want everything to yeah. happen at the same time. Well, let me when ask comes, you this. What happens if they do? What happens if we actually have to go on the offensive to deal with the Houthis? How does Iran react then? Well, what will likely happen is that the strikes would still not be complete obliteration. They would be more offensive and they would certainly be strategic, meaning they're going to go after uh, weapons depots. They're going to go, you know, and they have a lot of intelligence for that. So they're going to go, they're not going to go after wiping out complete training camps or things like that. It'll be more substantive um, in nature to the point. So, so as not to instigate something bigger, it'll, it'll be a very slow kind of a gradual effort. It won't be the big thing that, that, that you, that people might be afraid of. Yeah. So as not to do that. Um, and, and I don't think it would get there by the way, the U S has a very strong deterrent power in that corner of the world. And if they didn't, you would have on to be honest with you, Iran and Hezbollah would have already done something much more major against Israel and, and, uh, drawing the ire of the United States. And that is why they haven't. Um, and so that brings me to Hezbollah. So Hezbollah uh, those strikes are increasing across the border. And while you had the, the Hezbollah chief say that, well, we aren't afraid of war, um, and and Israel uh, Israel say, you know, well, neither are we, but we don't want it. Uh, now this week, the deputy of, of, of Hezbollah said, you know, 
um, well, we're not afraid, but we don't want it either. And and that's the truth. Neither of them really want it. Israel doesn't want to open a new front. They want to finish their the the effort to defeat Hamas, which I believe they will. They they need to finish off in Khan Yunis in the south of Gaza. They wanna they wanna focus on that before doing anything else. And Hezbollah, they don't act, their decision making is not like Hamas. Hamas is a terrorist organization only. And they they think and act like a terrorist organization, which means that they have nothing to lose when they pursue whatever violence they pursue. Hezbollah is a terrorist organization, but it also has wide support in Lebanon. It is part of the government. And it it effectively, whether on paper or not, it effectively controls everything there. The reason there's no president is because Hezbollah is blocking it. The airport is under the Hezbollah's, Hezbollah's thumb. The ports are under Hezbollah's thumb. The financial system, which was never under Hezbollah's thumb until recently when they have this acting central bank governor who is sides with Hezbollah. So if you control that much in a country and you have support, then you've got real things to lose if you draw the devastation that Israel would bring to You're the essentially the that, government. Yeah. Yes, they know everybody would blame Hezbollah for that. And you do see that in the rhetoric already, in the public rhetoric in Lebanon, is do not bring another war here. We're not interested. Hezbollah, behave. So you are already seeing that. A lot of this is Hezbollah showing some of their people that, you know, we're, we're there for our buddies, you know, and they're showing their Iranian mafia boss that they're there for them too. And you do risk, it's dangerous. So there's a risk of miscalculation if they do something so big that, Israel has no response, no, no, no course but to respond strongly. That could happen, but I don't think it's inevitable. Feel calmer now? No, no, your blood pressure is not high. No, I mean, I feel, I feel the world certainly is like fine. I, yeah, I mean, I <laughs> certainly understand the Lloyd Austin situation much better. I do wonder how you think that's going to play out. Sorry, going, going back to the main topic of this, of this conversation. Uh, uh, I do wonder how that's going to play out over the next couple of weeks and there's probably no getting around that this is going to be an ugly story for the White House for a while. Yeah, it's hard. It could go 50-50, right? It could either in yeah. two weeks, there's something new that they focus on that everyone focuses on, which is very possible. That's true. Or it could go the way of Claudine Gay, which, you know, totally different situation. Um, totally different situation. But but after, you know, I, I use that comparison only because after Harvard said, you know, no, we're not firing her. Um, it stayed in the press, right? Like that, that, that did not go away. That story did not go away. There were other issues obviously. And so on. I don't want to, it's a weird comparison. I know, but, but if I had to place my money, I would say that in two weeks they move on to something else because there's just, it's an election year. There's going to be so much out there. Um, there's so much happening in the world and it's, it feels like the saga du jour to me. Only the second week of January. I'm telling you. (laughs) It's, I'm not excited for what 2024 has to offer. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, that's a whole different tab. I don't want to open that one up right now. <laughs> Gar, uh, thank you, as always. Um, where should people find you? All over the internet. Thank you, Ron. I love our conversation so much. I am at at Geek Out with Hagar. That's my personal uh, personal handle on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, wherever you might be. Um, and please, please subscribe to my uh, geopolitical show, also political satire on YouTube called Oh My World. And you can also see Oh My World show on YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, also wherever you are. Perfect. We'll catch you next time. Thanks, Hagar. Thanks, Ron. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. 
This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.